Welcome to the Evolution Exchange podcast. My name is Josh Asquith and I provide top tech freelance talent. Um, today I'm here on the Evolution Exchange podcast with a super exciting guest. I'm here with Rasmus Brolin. He is the CEO of Avada Payments. Uh, you guys on the series know what it is that I do. So no messing about. Rasmus, over to you. Tell us who you are and what it is that you do. Thanks, Josh. I'm super happy to be here. It's going to be a lot of fun today, I think. Uh, yes, I think you pretty much said it. I'm I'm Rasmus. I'm the CEO at Avarda since May. I have ten years of experience from working in in tech and and finance. Um, I mean, yeah, that's pretty much it. Hi everyone, this is Chris Bennett here, the Knowledge Managing Director here at Evolution. We're committed to doing recruitment in a different way that adds value to both our clients and candidates by providing you with amazing speakers and leading edge discussions on what's going on in the tech scene at the moment. There are three reasons why you should contact me. If you would like to speak on a future podcast, if you are interested in hiring awesome tech data, product or gaming freelancers for your business, or if you are looking for an exciting new organization to work with, please get in touch. Thank you so much for listening, and I really hope to hear from you soon. Please enjoy the rest of the podcast. So you've got 10 years of experience, Rasmus. How old are you? Yeah, I'm 33. 33, cool. So 33 years old, CEO at a company of this size. How did you get here? Yeah, I mean, I, I I love to say that it was a sort of a, a, a straight straight path uh, to to this role, but it definitely wasn't. Uh, I mean, I I started. Uh, I I mean, I guess it starts with with school, right? I mean, it all starts with school. So I I studied uh, at the Lund University, started there in '09, uh, studied business and finance, and uh, you know after that, I was I was convinced that I wanted to be an investment banker. I you know I, I you know some of my previous colleagues laugh at me because I. I used to idolize uh, Patrick Bateman, which is probably not a, a, a good thing at this point, but I love the pinstripe suits and and uh, it was definitely a place that I wanted to be, or at least a, a place that I thought I wanted to be. So I did a ton of internships, uh, both at uh, sort of uh, local banks in Sweden and, and uh, uh, global banks in, in pretty harsh conditions. And I quickly picked up on the fact that this is definitely not what I want to do. So I sort of went back to the drawing board my last year at uh, at uh, university and, you know, tried to figure out what where to go from there. I had a few friends who were working at uh, uh, some of the big four companies as consultants and auditors. So and they were super aggressive in recruiting and uh, they were super happy as well with uh, with with their experience there. So. I I, uh, I went to an interview. I went to two interviews, I think, for the big four companies, Deloitte and EY, and ended up at EY being an auditor for for three years. And I pretty much took me 15 seconds of walking in the door until I realized that this is not what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life. But I still realized that it was probably going to be a, a fantastic experience for me. It was a long, like a pretty young group of people that were a lot of you know they were fun people. Um, and I can honestly say today, uh, you know, ten years later, that I'm I'm glad I I picked that path because that was um, um, it was first of all really fun. Uh, I, I I gained a lot of confidence working with uh, senior stakeholders, both uh, you know partner level within the company or within the bureau, and then also externally meeting clients early on, uh, getting a lot of responsibility. 
Uh, and it sort of gave me a platform to, to build on with the basic skills in, in finance and, and auditing and process management and organization. Um, and essentially just gave me a really good overview of, of, um, of companies um, as a whole. So from there, I, I, I went on to, to uh, um, sort of look for, for my next opportunity. And because, you know, that's usually three years is sort of the first breaking point for people to jump ship who, who, uh, who really, you know, think that that's not going to be the place where they're going to spend their life at. So I, uh, um, you know, was looking around and being from Stockholm, Sweden, I've always had an eye for, um, you know, a, a company that is, uh, I think most of you, uh, no, it's Klarna. Um, it was sort of really up and coming at that point. It was very established already, but not global in the way uh, that it is today. Um, and I was able to get an opportunity to work at, at Klarna. Uh, and uh, everyone had warned me sort of that uh, the, you know, the, it's a really tough culture and uh, it's, uh, you know, uh, you know, a very stressful time. But I, I can honestly say that I spent more than seven years there and I was the time of my life. It was a lot of fun. I, I sort of picked up right where I where I ended off at EY and and uh, learned so much from from the, my Klarna experience and so many things that I'm grateful for and uh, was able to network a lot. Uh, met some of my you know still today some of my best friends uh, and it sort of paved the way for me to become what I am today, which is a leader for a company which with has more than 100 employees. And uh, we're, you know, Avarda is, is, uh, is a company that has presence in, in all of the Nordics. Uh, we are, you know, yes, we are a challenger, but we are a, a true challenger in, in the Nordic market. And I think we do something really cool here. So, yeah, so that's um, that's sort of my my brief version of, the, of my history, of my story. No, it's good. And... I'm looking forward to later on in this episode finding out what it is that you are doing now. But until, but before that, there's a whole journey to unpick. So you learn some skills. Go back to what you said about UI. You learn some skills that built a foundation for you to become the the leader that you are now. You said they were in finances and things like that. But what are the skills that you learned early on that allowed you to be a leader? What are the leadership skills that you learn, or what were the lessons that you learn? that have helped you to shortcut this trajectory that people that you're on and that other people are on? Yeah, I mean, that's an excellent question. I've, I've thought of that quite a lot. But I think the first things that I picked up from EY weren't, they weren't about being a leader at all. I mean, they were just uh, how to work. Because I think a lot of a lot of young people come out and you know they're shocked of what they're what they meet when they enter into companies and i'm i'm you know you get something for free when you go into banking or consulting because you work with very tight deadlines you have you know you have ex, you know external stakeholders that are paying you a lot of money for the services that you're providing so i think the first thing that i want to highlight is that i i learned what a deadline is and um, as a deadline is a deadline it's not something that you can push generally uh, and it's it's something that you need to keep to and and i mean sometimes that was uh, i think you can ask my my wife as well i mean it was uh, it was a tough time it was a lot of lot of work a lot of late nights uh, early mornings um uh, but that was one of the key takeaways that that sort of set me up for for where i am today that i was able to keep the deadlines i was able to get the work done it was less about talking and more about doing uh, so that is sort of the 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 skills that I picked up from 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 EY. 
And then when it came to, I mean, I was never a, like, I mean, I was never a formal leader at DY. I was, I, I did sort of have some mentorship uh, informally. Um, and I, I realized quite quickly that, I mean, it's one thing to, to sort of, you know, tell people or motivate people, but it's a whole nother thing to show them. It's a whole nother thing to live by uh, the examples that you that you that you set, right? So, so I think that's another thing that I also learned uh, and developed that at at my time at uh, at Klarna, which was uh, I think a very good school as well for me because I was able to as at a very young age. I was uh, I think I was twenty six when I first twenty seven when I first got my my uh, manager role. I was able to hire a small team uh, with junior people. I mean, I mean, we were all junior at that time, but it was it was a it was a good sort of playground for me to figure out what was uh, how uh, how I can motivate people, how I can lead people, and I found out that my way of leading is to lead by example. Um, so I tried to be in the office, talking to people. I tried to make sure that uh, I stay positive. I tried to make sure that I stay focused. I tried to make sure that I have, um, uh, th that I know what the target is, what is it that we're trying to solve for. Uh, and then try to, together with my team, um, I mean, really collaborate to come up with a solution of, of how we go from there. But the other thing that I learned from, from, from my previous history is that you can't be afraid to make decisions. And that's something that can sometimes be a little bit controversial, at least in, in the Nordics. So I was happy that I was able to work in an international environment where it uh, was less controversial. Um, so lead, in leadership where I've been before, making decisions was part of it. Taking risks was part of it, but making sure that you don't take unnecessary risk. So, so for me, it, that was sort of what set me up to today. And I've always been sort of, I've always been keen on making decisions. I've always been, I mean, some would probably kill it, uh, call it uh, quick on the trigger, but uh, uh, I, I just call it decisive. <laughs> I think it's a, it's a difference. So in terms of making decisions then, Masters, have you developed like an internal framework for decision making? Some people say, oh, if I get 40% certainty, I'll pull the trigger and I'll see what happens. Or... Do you just gut feeling? How do you make those decisions so quickly? I mean, it was it was um, it's about making um, you know. I, I like what you said. I mean, it's there's some part that is obviously you 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 can't know the uncertainty, uh, and I think that is sort of part experience, part. I mean, an experience is what maybe some people would call gut feel. Uh, for me, it's it's experience having made a lot of different decisions. I think a lot more than you know the probably the average. 33 year old, uh, um, just purely because of the situations I've been there and the opportunities that I've had. But generally, I've worked with the data and analytics at, at Klarna. I was the head of analytics and, and finance and, and worked closely with credit risk. So we had a huge amount of data to, to go on. And so we use that data to support all the decisions. But then you don't want to analyze things to death. You want to make sure that you you know what you're trying to solve for. You know, uh, you know, you, with your experience, you know how you can get there. And then you make a decision. It doesn't always mean that it's the right decision, but it's a decision. And I'd rather make, if I'm forced to make a decision, I'd rather make a decision quickly that I can then iterate on until it becomes something that, that we think is spot on what we're trying to solve for, rather than being indecisive and, and just wait it out. Uh, I'd, I'd always want to be... 
deliberate in my, my way of acting. So, so when I say deliberate, it means that I don't want things to be left to chance. I want to be there making an active decision on which path uh, we want to head on. And sometimes that's that's a fork in the road. And but then you have to choose. And there are probably not there are probably more than just one good way of going. Uh, um, but the most important thing is that you pick one. Makes a lot of sense. A lot of people, myself included, sometimes are victims to paralysis by analysis. And it's interesting to hear how people make decisions. I guess the problem that you face is you make the decision, you own the risk associated to that. So if you were to, knowing what you know now and knowing your framework, if you were to speak to somebody who is fresh in their leadership career, what's the one thing that you would tell them is the most important thing to consider when making a big decision or where it feels like the risks are big? Own it. Super simple. Like I think if, if I can elaborate on that, I think owning their owning it is much better than 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 sort of pushing it away it's i've i mean i've made a ton of bad decisions but as long as you own up to it and and you know you 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 make sure that you say this is on me uh, i i own this not only does it sort of give you you know the, your team confidence that you actually have someone who, who's backing you up for it uh, but but uh, your 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 managers or your bosses or your your clients or whoever it is they will respect it, and I think that's also important because if you own it then you can you can work on it, but if you don't own it and you start pointing fingers that's when you're you're in a pickle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And along this journey now I know we're talking about hypotheticals that you can answer based on your experience. What is the most challenging thing you've had to learn in your leadership journey? Uh, I think the most challenging thing that I've had to learn is that you have to have the people with you, honestly, because it's uh, as you know, it's easy to make decisions. It's harder to get people to buy into those decisions. And in the end, I think I've been naive or I wasn't naive when I started out being a leader. I, I was, you know, um, I was quick on making decisions, what I thought were the right decisions, but often were two or three or four steps ahead of people, you know, surrounding me. And that uh, created a lot of confusion, it creating frust- created frustration, in certain instances also anger. Um, and uh, it wasn't perhaps maybe the most pleasant work environment uh, because I was running so fast. Uh, uh, so. I, I, I think I've had to learn, and I've had great mentors for this as well, where communication is key here. So nowadays, when I make decisions, I try to frame it. I try to frame it better. I try to tell a story around it. I try to make sure to give the background. And I try to, uh, you know, you know, certainly like try to own it, essentially, and, and, and own the story of it. Um, and the narrative is very important for for me when I try to make decisions as well. Like, how can I frame this uh, externally or internally? Uh, I mean, whether it's to the board or whether it's to your to your team, it doesn't really matter. You need to have a story to tell. You need to have a narrative. So that's how you get. So do people buy into the story or do people buy into the person? I think it's a little bit of both, definitely. Definitely. I mean, I think I've been fortunate in 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 my position where I've been before that uh, I think I had a really good track record as a person, uh, both as an individual contributor, 
um, and as a leader of teams. Uh, so that gave me a lot of credibility. Um, I think today uh, I find myself in a little bit of a different situation where, of course, um, I mean, I still have the same track record, but it's not within the company that I'm leading. So here it's more about, it's more important for me to, to really have a, a solid narrative and well thought through narrative before I make decisions and make sure that, you know, the company, the management team, uh, they're uh, aligned with that than it was at, uh, at my previous employer. Because then I, people relied on me and they knew that I had a, a, a lot of experience and they knew that, uh, you know, my track record essentially spoke for itself. So I was, I've been in both positions. So I can't really say that it's either one or the other. I think it's a combination of both, but it all depends on the context that you're in. No, that makes a lot of sense. And just, you got me thinking about, you got me on a train of thought there about building a track record and building a track record. You go through various stages in your career, various stages of leadership from junior manager, middle, senior, up to CEO. Which of those stages of leadership was the most challenging or is the most challenging and why? I think it, it, it comes to a certain point where when you are a fresh manager, uh, a new manager, a junior manager, whatever you want to call it, you you're you're in a position where there are like very like pretty low expectations on you. Is I mean, it, usually it's a pretty protected um, uh, sort of environment that you're in. Maybe you're leading a small team, or maybe you're leading a team that is sort of doesn't have the direct business impact or something like that. I mean, even if you mess up, maybe that's not the end of the world. But at some point, as you make your way and you become um, a leader of many teams, you become more or less and less hands-on. You become less and less, in, uh, less, and less involved with the details. Mm -hmm. And it becomes a lot harder to lead, I mean, being, being hands-on, so to say. I mean, I think that's only natural, right? Mm -hmm. um, so you have to really prioritize and, and figure out what is it that is the most important thing and focus on that. And that can sometimes be difficult, but at the same time, the expectations are also, uh, you know, increased uh, severe, right? So, so when you have the combination of not being able to be as hands-on or in the details as you were or once were, in combination with um, increased expectations from your stakeholders, from your man, from your other managers, from your teams, etc., I think that's the most challenging position to be in. Because not only are you not used to that way of working, uh, you also see, see that there are plenty of expectations around you. I mean, when you come up to a, you know, a, a director level and you have plenty of teams, or if you're a CEO or whatever it may be, then I think the expectation is that you can't be involved in all the details and you, you need to prioritize your time. And that's why you surround yourself with excellent people. To, to be in the details. And then you rely on those individuals to, to make the same, the same decisions you were able to do when you were you know, a lot more junior or, or, or whatever it may be. But I think uh, when you're in that middle ground, when you're, when you're not used to that way of working, you're used to being in all of the details and knowing everything, but you realize that you can't. And at the same time, the expectations are on you that you should be all in all of the details or make executive decisions or whatever it may be. That's definitely the most tricky. So I would have expected not being in your position that just naturally as you grow through those levels, the capacity to cope with those expectations grows 
with your level of seniority. But it sounds though there's there's been a point where there's a disconnect. How did you bridge that disconnect? Or is it just time? Yeah, I mean, I think time is it. I mean, if, I mean, failure is part of it. Uh, uh, achievements is also part of it. So, I mean, it, if you build confidence. You build the um, um, track record. Uh, you 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 build the experience, and and those are those are things that you. I mean, when you come up to a CEO level, like I know what expectations are for on. on I know that they are very very high, uh, but at least I've come into the position knowing that. Uh, so, but when you're in somewhere in between, then there's like a disconnect between what what you expect from yourself and what others uh, expect from you. So I think that's that's that sort of that delta that's created is is very tri- tri- tricky to manage, and I think a lot of people get stuck there. Uh, so in order to continue pushing, you probably need to, you know, realize that the first gut instinct for a lot of managers uh, who are in that position is to become more and more into the details. But then you bury yourself with work, and then you can't, you know, you can't see the forest for all the trees. At some point, you're in that position because you have a, you have a good understanding of the business. You have a good understanding of the objectives. You have a good understanding of the competence that you have in your teams, and you know how to execute on it. You need to make sure that you are surrounded by the best people that you can, uh, and and make sure that you scale yourself. And that's what I—that's I, probably the most um, common mistake I see in sort of managers or in that middle step. Okay, so it's the difficulty of stepping out that is the—that's the big challenge in that. That's super interesting. So, if you can tell people that are transitioning through the different areas of leadership, one most important thing that will shortcut your journey or shortcut you a lot of the pain that comes with the these learns. What would it be? What's the one thing that you'd want them to know? One thing that uh, I'd want them to know, um, I think it would be, I mean, failure is okay. Like having, you learn from it. I think that's most people who are in that position and in leadership, including myself, I think would consider themselves being, uh, being sort of high achievers. And it's, when you're a high achiever, you you aren't perhaps used to having failures, or you're used to winning at everything you do. Um, and when you, I mean, it, you will have failures. You just have to accept them, learn from them, and go on. And um, I think that's uh, that's something that I would probably say. Okay. How hard was the first one, and was it easier than the last one you played? Yeah, I mean, a lot, a lot this year. I mean, my first real big failure was I was yelled at by, by the um, uh, chief commercial officer at uh, at Klarna many years ago. Uh, I still remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, I honestly remember that better than I remember the last mistake. <laughs> so, so that that was uh, that was a that was a a, a big failure, and uh, I mean, I was flustered. I was. Uh, it was it was it was definitely tough. I mean, I've had plenty of failures after that. They've been tough to deal with as well. And uh, I mean, it, 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 I, I'd love to say that it becomes easier, and to some extent it does. Um, generally, the, the more busy you are, the easier it becomes because then you can sort of move on to the next thing, and and then you can focus your mind on something else. But uh, uh, I mean, 
like if you for example if you have a huge delivery then what like it's hard to have a huge failure because you need to have a lot of different sort of milestones and you need to have uh, iterations and then you have a steering group so you can make of course small mistakes uh, but in order for the entire project to become a failure I, I think there are a lot of different things that should go wrong but then there are other deliveries i mean for example if you're working in in uh, in credit risk you can make mistakes and and uh, uh, have a you know you can you can sort of put something in production that probably shouldn't be in there and you can crash something that's that's a failure and that happens but then and i i I've been part of that as well. Uh, and uh, then it's just trying to figure out how do we make sure that that doesn't happen again. Uh, and, and uh, you know, things happen. No, that makes a lot of sense. And it's so simple, but just touching on one of the things you said there, I never considered being busy as a way to cope with some of the failures that you make. So simple, but it makes sense. You can't wallow if you don't have the time to wallow. I like that. So. Your career has been in, has been in and remains in fintech. Yeah. What, to people that have an aspiration to be in fintech, of which there are many, um, what's important for them to know about the fintech industry? Um, I think I would say that the fintech industry is, uh, is very diverse in a way. I mean, you can be in different parts of, of fintech. Um, I think it all boils down to, you have to, in my mind, you have to, you know, like like data, you have to work uh, like working in a in a digital environment. You have to, you know, um, be keen on on uh, um, sort of making making decisions, and you have to be keen on on changes, and you have to like that because it is a fast paced, fast changing environment. Uh, fintech as as a whole, I would say, some maybe more more than others, but if you, it's not traditional banking. Which I mean has largely not been changed in in many many years, but when you come to fintech, then you know the the technology evolves, uh, the environment evol evolves, uh, yeah, the people evolves, uh, and you have to be there for 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 the journey, and you have to embrace the change. Uh, I think that that would be uh, my 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 biggest sort of the the words of wisdom that I would say. I mean, you have to uh, embrace change, and you have to perhaps also not only embrace, but you have to love it. Makes a lot of sense. So on the show, but I don't actually have any follow-up questions. Yeah. <laughs> it's just about being adaptable. Yeah. Okay. So I know you're a humble guy. We've spoken before. But I'm going to ask you a question which may take you out of your comfort zone a little. There are lots of people that want to be leaders at 33. I'm on yet. So you've hired people, you've understood people's journeys, you've mentored people through the journeys, you've been mentored. What's different about you? Why are you a CEO of 33 and others aren't? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a really difficult question, of course. Uh, I mean, and I'm not sure that about the, the humbleness. I don't, I'm not sure my wife would, uh, would agree with that. Uh, yeah, and probably not some of my friends either. But uh, I mean, I think what, what sort of, what, what differentiates me? One interesting thing is that the the same things that I heard as sort of constructive feedback, as it's so uh, nicely put, when I was junior or more junior than I am today, uh, is the same things that probably 
I I drives me the most today. So I, I can't really say that I've changed a lot. I've always been a fairly intense person. Uh, I've always been, I would I would probably begin to say extremely results oriented. Um, I've always been a little bit obsessive uh, with with some things. And and when I was when I was more like when I was a junior, I mean working at EY, that was sort of one of the most frequent things that popped up like yeah yeah i mean you you know you you have to tone it down you have to be you know take a step back you have to be you know this and this and this way and uh when i when i stepped into klarna it was something that was uh, encouraged in a way i mean of course i had to sort of harness it in the right way and i had to finesse myself around it um but but it was it was encouraged and that gave me a lot of uh, a lot of sort of power and, and, and drive uh, and, and built confidence for me. And I think I can still today become, I'm, I, I would call it passionate about whatever I do. I am passionate about work. Um, and But it's not only work. I mean, I'm passionate about all the things that I care about. I mean, I spend a lot of time working. So of course, I, if I'm working a lot, of, uh, a lot of hours or a lot, then I need to be passionate about it. I'm also a, a keen golfer. I'm a keen tennis player. I'm extremely passionate about that. There's no middle ground for me there. I, I mean, it's it's. I mean, an anecdote is that my mother has always been a really big role model for me. I mean, she was a successful businesswoman, uh, you know, 90s and 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 so on. Uh, so I've always seen her. I mean, she's traveled a lot, and and uh, so I've always had her to look up to, uh, and I'm very grateful for that. Um, but one thing that when I was a kid, she's from Poland, uh, so I have, I'm half Polish. She called me Muszek, which in Polish, if you translate it, it's like the person who must do something. So I was always that was one of my first first words uh, actually that I have to. It's I must do something. It was never could I or I should. It was always I felt like uh, an urge that I I really must do it, and that became my my sole purpose almost even if it was just for the second or for for the moment um so that has sort of been something that's uh, that's that's driven me maybe that's it makes me sets me apart a little bit from from uh, from uh, from from other people um especially i don't think i it's rare that i shut down or it's rare that i turn things off my mind is always going thinking about something maybe it's not always work but it's always something and it doesn't Always, it doesn't really bother me either. It's um, just something that I embrace, and uh, I I like being that way. Uh, but and I see a lot of people. I mean, and and there's no judgment in that or so. But when they go home, or they maybe do their eight hours, and then they go home, and then you know, of course, they spend time with their family. They do other things that that they really care about, and I do that as well. But it's very hard for me to disconnect from whatever I'm passionate about. And I'm passionate about the industry that I'm working. I'm passionate about payments. I'm passionate about data. I'm passionate about the people that I work with. Uh, so so I think that probably is something that sets me apart. So it's fair to say that you're an all-in or all-out person. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Makes a lot of sense. And a lot of leaders, I love listening to other people's podcasts, and a lot of leaders talk about leadership is, a, is sacrifice. But when I hear yourself talk about it and I see you, and it seems as though 
it might not be so much sacrifice if it's something that you really enjoy doing, if it's something that you need to do. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, there are tough times, of course. Like, uh, I think that there are definitely sacrifices that I've done. Uh, I mean, I've, I've sacrificed, I mean, a lot of, I wouldn't say relationships, but I've, I've sacrificed probably a lot of fun. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I can recall, you know, uh, having to take late night calls uh, with, with my managers or whatever it may be when I, you know, I'm, I'm standing in a nightclub and and walking into the kitchen of the nightclub to take calls because i i i had to take a call um so those are the types of things that that if you're always an all all in type of person then you can't just disconnect from that so i i've i've never i can't at least maybe someone will correct me but i can't at least recall where i've said i'm off i can't take this call for example but obviously that that um, takes a toll on people around you. Uh, so I think I definitely, and, and to some extent also my health at some points, because it is, it, it takes a toll on you when you're always on, when you're always, you know, trying to do the best you possibly can. And you still see things, you know, that, that aren't great happen. Then it, uh, it you sort of, I, I tend to take things personally as well sometimes. So it, it has taken a toll on, on my health at some points. Uh, uh, and it's taken a toll on the relationships that I've had around me, uh, but generally, I would say that I'm 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 happy being in this position. I'm 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 thankful for it. Uh, all the experiences that I've had, and I've had uh, have another thirty years, hopefully, to be in leadership positions. And I've I've just you know I'm just starting my journey. I haven't even started. No, makes sense. And speaking of just starting your journey, you are just starting your journey at Avada. So talk to me about Avada. Yeah, I mean, Avada is a really cool company, uh, which uh, sort of really caught my eye uh, uh, maybe a year ago, um, having attracted some of the, the, the largest um, and, and sort of most prestigious merchants there is really in the Nordic markets. So I was sort of looking at, at Avada from, from the side thinking, hmm, this, uh, this company is doing, doing something pretty cool here. And Avard is sort of a, a, a challenger to what I would call almost traditional uh, payments and checkout and, and BNPL. We do something that, it, that, I mean, is pretty much you know, the same from a checkout solution. We provide a full suite checkout uh, with the integrated delivery options and, and, uh, uh, and have full suite of payment methods as well. And then we sort of, but the difference is that we are doing it in a, a, a white label. So we believe that through, doing, through white label solutions, we're able to sort of, uh, to not only attract um, for the merchant's perspective, we're not only able to attract uh, uh, consumers, but we're able to make the consumers return to the merchants. So we have white labeled the entire experience for the consumer end to end, which includes uh, everything from the look and feel in the in the checkout to the afterflow with communication to the consumer, uh, and uh, the entire purpose with it is to sort of provide flexible solutions that that sort of reattracts the customer to make additional purchases and lo build loyalty with the merchant and not with us particularly as a uh, as a payment service provider. So so that is what we do, and I think. 
the the people who have been here, I can't take any credit for it because I've only been here uh, for for five months. But they've been something really good. They have a, a good portfolio of uh, of excellent merchants. Um, they have built a fantastic tech technical platform which enables flexibility for both the the merchants for 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 the customers and for the consumers. Uh, so we can pretty much design and build whatever solution that fits fits your business essentially and from the consumer perspective we make sure that we never compromise on on the customer experience as well so it is um i think a unique positioning in the nordics in terms of we are the only true real uh, white label bmpn provider in the nordics uh, and uh, we've had a straight steady growth for uh, since since uh, since inception which was 2015 and I think that they've done so really, really well uh, and uh, have a really good product. To those that don't know what white label means, what does white label mean? I mean, it essentially means that we are providing the technical platform, uh, but we are not the brand that stands out. So um, if you have a merchant, for example, Boost is our, is our biggest merchant, well-known uh, uh, brand in, in all of the Nordics. Uh, it doesn't say Avarda, it says Boost. And every single touch point with the consumer is labeled with Boost. Uh, so we are essentially selling the, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the technology behind uh, in the, that, that platform that Boost is utilizing. And the, um, I think that's been a very successful uh, partnership first of all and it is uh, something that we have learned a lot from and today we are very proud of, of our products and we are uh, we received very positive feedback of what we're doing and uh, we can see that in the numbers as well thank you and speaking of now we understand now with the understanding of what white label payments are and what Avada does what kind of emerging technologies do you think are going to help on have a an impact on what it is that you do and how? I mean, I think with the risk of being a little bit cliche here, but I think it's hard to hard to not see the the uh, the you know, like the emerging of of AI technology and machine learning and advanced analytics, whatever you want to call it. I mean, that is really uh, taking the taking the world by storm. I mean, it's always been present for for for. I mean, all corporations or all companies in in one way or another. I mean, whether it's building uh, scoring models or or uh, something else. But I think now with just the accessibility of of uh, of uh, 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 of these types of, of technologies, it's just going to boost. Um, it's just going to boost uh, um, how we use it and and uh, in in and where we use it. So for for Avarda, of course, I mean we are, we what we do is BMPF. So I think uh, using AI for for preferences from consumer preferences, tailoring the the uh, whether it's tailoring the checkout or it's tailoring the communication with the consumer. Uh, or change a challenge or um, uh, sort of uh, or um, uh, sorry, I lost my track there, but or whether it's uh, offering a tailored uh, offering to the consumer. Uh, that's obviously like an obvious point. But from from our side on the internal, uh, like internally within Avarda, it's also within risk management. I mean, we're able to build better models, better scoring models, uh, better better identification of our consumers and customers. And just leveraging that power in in AI 
and the sort of ease of use for it, because now it's available to everyone, to one way or another. Technology that was before only uh, sort of, it was only available for, for the most high tech or most advanced companies. Now it's available to everyone. And we have taken some steps and some big strides in, in that direction. We've hired uh, excellent dedicated analysts who are, who are um, you know, exploring this topic and, and figuring out how we can better utilize it and make sure that we provi provide extra or additional value to our merchants and to, to our end consumers. Uh, so so I'm, I'm very optimistic about it, but obviously a lot of other companies are doing it as well. So I think it's going to be sort of a, 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 a race here and uh, the development is going to be very, very quick. Definitely. I think the race is only going to be interesting for everybody in this space because everybody's going to be pushing each other to be better. Yeah. It'll be super interesting. And I can just say also, like, I mean, it's also transformed the way that I work, uh, honestly, using, um, you know, language models and, and uh, OpenAI and ChatGPT is, is really uh, increased my productivity as well. And I use it on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and so, so that's just sort of a simple way of how I've been able to increase my productivity. I mean, whether it's, uh, um, you know, looking over policy documents or, or uh, writing emails, I think it's, uh, it's a great tool for just increasing quality just a little bit mm -hmm. and and that is usually uh, usually enough what's your best tip for personal use of ai language models i mean best tip is generally like just use it for everything and see what works and what doesn't work uh, I, I mean you you can become better at prompting you can uh, learn how to how to sort of have an uh, an iterative conversation uh, to make sure that the outcome is what you expected and then the second part is that make sure that you keep and reuse all the conversations, all the different chats that you have, uh, because you know they they learn from each of the chats. So uh, the next time you have something similar and you're you were happy with the outcome once, you can just say that copy this exact thing and then do but use this instead. And then you have to you can skip all the steps of having to have a you know a four or five message back and forth in order to get to that to the end product. That's a great tip. I'm laughing because it's so simple. And I can think of three times in this past seven days where I've needed the same thing I've needed before and I've not copy and pasted. Yeah. Probably shouldn't put that out for the whole audience to hear, but it is what it is. Yeah. Um, last question. We were talking about companies racing with AI to get, and it's going to improve the space. Is there any way that companies can collaborate? Well, we're talking about FinTech. Anyway, companies can collaborate to make the space better moving forward. Yeah, I think that there are a lot of. Uh, I mean, uh, Avarda, we are we are definitely collaborating with a lot of uh, other fintechs as well. I mean, uh, I mean whether it's within the open banking service or whether it's within uh, card processing. I, I think the the more we collaborate, then we find like minded or uh, uh, you know companies that are similar to yourself in 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 uh, in sort of the value ground and what you want to achieve you can help each other you can learn from each other uh, and uh, that is really valuable so i i think we've already seen uh, a lot of different uh, a lot of different aspects where where i think we can learn from um, both how to improve the payment journey but also make sure that you you always get access to the latest and greatest in terms of technology or or uh, products or whatever it may be and I'm actually going to to the Copenhagen uh, um, Nordic FinTech we uh, Week uh, tomorrow, 
So to, to meet some of, of our sort of peers and some of our uh, some of my own colleagues and and uh, I'm really looking forward to that. And that's sort of part of it. It's trying to learn from what are what are they doing and how can we learn from each other. That's awesome. Russ, I just want to say a big thank you. I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. I've learned a lot. I am certain that whoever is listening to this will have learned something too. Speaking of where you're going to be. Where can people find you if they want to find you on the internet or however you want to be found? Yeah, I mean, uh, you can always uh, send a send a connection request on LinkedIn, uh, Rasmus Rowland. Uh, I mean, my Instagram is not that fun, so <laughs> I don't post enough. But uh, yeah, so I think uh, yeah, just connect with me on LinkedIn, and we can we can probably have a chat. Awesome, Rasmus. Thank you once again, and to yourself that's listening. Thank you.